2: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're talking all about sieges. You think that a siege is something of the past, forces holding a city to ransom, stopping people coming in and out until the inhabitants inside starve, give up or run out of munitions. Well, You might think back to Roman siege engines or medieval sieges of giant castles and think that this is very much a thing of the past. But as Major Amos C. Fox, who is executive officer of the 3rd Squadron 4th Security Force Assistant Brigade at Fort Carson, Colorado, he is a major in the U.S. Army, As he explains to us, the siege is very much still part of modern warfare, even if we don't hear about it. He takes us through the modern history of the siege in the post-Cold War period, from the sieges of Sarajevo to Srebrenica and into modern warfare today he shows us that the russians still use sieges in the war in ukraine and how the west still uses its sieges despite the fact we think that these are very much distant surgical precise drone wars there are still vast sieges going on in places like the battle for mosul which as amos argues should probably be more accurately called the siege of mosul so here he is the brilliant major amos c fox on the modern history of sieges Hi, Amos. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing great, James. Thank you. Uh, How are you? I'm good. Yeah, good
2: to see you again. The last time we spoke, we were debating precision warfare and sieges at a conference in Denmark. And I've read your work and we had to get you on to talk about why sieges, which we see as being so historically important, are important once again today. So it's great to have you on. So where are you speaking to us from today?
3: I'm speaking to you today from uh, Round Rock, Texas, which is a small suburb just outside Austin, Texas, where the great University of Texas is located.
2: Fantastic. And you are active military, aren't you? You're a major in the U.S. Army. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and service?
3: Yeah, that's correct. I'm a major in the U.S. Army, and I've served in the Army for about 17 years now. I'm an armor officer, which for the layperson is tanks and cavalry, although we don't have horses in our cavalry any longer. We still carry on a lot of those traditions. And so I've had a, a fairly typical armor officer career to this point. I've done uh, platoon leader, tank company command, cavalry troop command, operations and executive officer time in armored units and cavalry units. And uh, I'm getting ready to start a new job here at uh, Army Futures Command here in Austin here in a couple of weeks.
2: So why is someone who specializes in Army's Futures Command, the future of warfare, focusing on siege warfare you know are these not something that we see as akin to the roman siege engines and the medieval blockades of castles in the past or are modern sieges on the rise and are they a very different beast
3: so it's funny that you ask that because contrary to what a lot of people think sieges are playing a fairly uh, prolific place in modern war today so they differ quite a bit from what you would see in the past. So in the past, the siege was the war in many cases. And there was, it was a long investment of time and resources. And in today, sieges are more often a tactic, It fits in the battle or operation space, as opposed to just the way the war is fought in general. And so if you look at wars coming out of the post-Cold War space, you see that sieges appear quite frequently, but are often dressed up in other ways and hidden through the use of other terms or euphemisms. And one way it's often overlooked is through the discussion of urban warfare. And we talk about urban warfare more so than siege warfare. But in many cases, sieges are tucked up beneath the veil of urban warfare.
2: So what are the most important sieges in our recent past? Then, what ones have we overlooked in the historiography?
3: So coming out of the post-Cold War space, the Siege of Sarajevo essentially kicks off this period of sieges that we find ourselves in. And so the Siege of Sarajevo was part of the Balkan Wars. It lasted from April of 1992 to February of 1996. Going from there, you go to the siege of Srebrenica, which essentially runs roughly through the same time period. And uh, you see 9,000 deaths. That one got a lot of attention at the time. We're still dealing with the ramifications from that one in many cases with the trials that are going on for a lot of the people that were either policymakers or military leaders during that. But then coming out of that, you go into the siege of Grozny, which went from December of 99 to February of 2000 in which Russia, as part of the Second Chechen War, goes in and smashes the city of Grozny to bring the Chechens to heel, essentially, during that war. And reports vary, but upwards of 8,000 people were killed in that, and, and the city was once called the most destroyed city in the world at the end of that siege. From there, it's a quick jump into the Operation Iraqi Freedom, which kicked off in 2003. And the first and second battles of Fallujah, which went from April of 2004 and then the second battle of Fallujah in November to December of 2004, were the first U.S. American instances and coalition instances of sieges in modern times in that post Cold War space. And so from there, that's basically what got the dominoes falling as it relates to modern sieges today. And so if you look around the globe today and all the wars that are going on, it's not hard to quickly find sieges. If you look at Syria, you had Aleppo, you had Raqqa, you had Gouda, you had Kobani, you had Deir ez-Zor. Those were all significant sieges there in those campaigns. And then when you look at Operation Inherent Resolve, the campaign in Iraq to counter the Islamic State, Ramadi to a smaller degree early on in that campaign was a siege in many regards. But then when you get to Mosul, Mosul is a fairly significant siege, and it was almost a two-part siege as they cleared each part of the city, or as the U.S.-led coalition cleared both parts of that city there. And then when you look at the counter-ISIS campaign in the Philippines, the Battle of Marawi, in many cases, is a siege itself that often gets overlooked, too. And these aren't small, short-term sieges in many cases. The Battle of Marawi was a six-month siege. The Battle of Mosul was nine months and essentially was the exact same duration as the First World War's battle of Verdun. And in many cases, was far more destructive. And then if you look beyond that and you look into what Russia is doing in Ukraine or has done into Ukraine up to this point, sieges dominate that conflict as well. Early on, you had the siege of Ilovaisk. Then you had the second battle of Donetsk Airport was in effect a siege and then the siege of Debaltseve. And in Ilovaisk and Debaltseve, what you have is you have sieges that have a decisive effect on the overall campaign, right? And so Ilovaisk resulted in the Minsk Protocol, which was the early attempt at a ceasefire, And then when you look at it generated the Minsk II agreement, which was another politically decisive event, right? Because if we go back to JFC Fuller, decision in war is something that brings about a change in a plan or forces a decision from military leaders or policymakers. And so in the traditional sense of the word, Ilovice, the siege of Ilovice and the siege of Debaltseva both brought about political decisions that had political and military impact on those campaigns.
2: So are all sieges Different in modern warfare, or do they have some characteristics that link them? For example, when I was out in the Middle East doing my research into ISIS drones and the spread of that technology from Europe deep into Mosul University and places like that, and how ISIS used their hundreds, if not thousands, of drone systems in urban warfighting to send them up out of the city and at coalition and partner forces that were seeking to break their way in, then you start to see that a siege perhaps has, of course, the besiege actors in the middle firing out and then those waiting just to hold back and to starve people out or to send in volleys to break their resolve so that you can somehow get into the city and break that siege. Is that the same as every siege or is every siege different?
3: Uh, Most sieges tend to be different. There's some patterns and themes that emerge when you look at them in detail. Again, like I said, they aren't the war. They're a tool that's used within the war. Uh, Sieges, in many cases today, as a result of that, they're battles, so they're smaller in scale and time, or they're operations, which are larger in scale and time. And they're essentially encirclements and battles of position. And so this is one of the things that gets lost in the discussion today, too, is in Western militaries, we like to advocate The primacy of maneuver, but in many cases, these battles highlight that that maneuver doesn't necessarily hold the position of prominence that we thought and positional battles such as these sieges are really where most action lies. So when you break it down, there's essentially porous sieges and impermeable sieges, and it's dependent on two basic factors. The factors are the aggressor's political will and military aims and the forces that it has on hand or offhand that can be brought in in relatively short order to help reinforce that siege. And so those are two factors that determine or help determine whether or not a siege is either porous or impermeable. And we generally think of sieges this way. Sieges are largely fought in urban terrain, right? Because that's where people are at. And In many cases, sieges are fought in urban terrain because one actor, usually a weaker actor, is looking to offset the strength of a stronger actor, which is the attacking actor. And so they fall back into a city or an urban area, some sort of built up area to offset the strength, to dislocate the strength of the attacking actor. And so most sieges are urban. However, they don't necessarily need to be. You can still have a siege that's force oriented on a force that's out in the open. Typically, when we think of that, that's more of that battle, the Kesselschlacht, If you're into the German, those battles of encirclement where you slowly constrict that opponent out in the open. But you can see them either in the open or closed terrain. And when you see them in open terrain, they're usually force oriented because there's no urban area there. And so those are the primary differences between sieges today. Could
2: sieges also be a strategy of the weak in asymmetric warfare as well? Because I'd always think that no one wants to be in a siege situation. But just hearing you speak and thinking in lines of international law and needing to safeguard civilians and being proportionate and discriminate in warfare – could it not benefit a non-state or terroristic actor to set up a siege in an urban civilian environment and then to use civilians as a kind of human shield? Is a siege a weapon of the weak?
3: Yeah, so that's another interesting point that I think often gets overlooked in these discussions is we look at the aggressor's strategy and not necessarily that of the defender or the weaker actor. And so you're correct. In many cases, I think you see for ISIS and Mosul, for instance, Again, Mosul was in effect its it's capital there in Iraq, but they hunkered down, they drew in there for one because it gives them a fighting advantage that they wouldn't otherwise have, right? So fighting in a city like that negates a lot of the capabilities that advanced armies can bring to bear. It also highlights the fact that a lot of modern states don't like to go in and clear out cities like Mosul with their own forces, which is part of the reason you see the rise in proxy wars today as well. It's much easier to have somebody else go do the fighting and dying for you. You stand back on the outside, you provide them precision strike capability, and then you let those folks go into the cities and do the fighting and dying. And so it resonates for a couple of reasons. It resonates because of that, because you can alienate the support that the aggressor may have, the person trying to levy the siege by them doing indiscriminate killing. Again, when we look at Mosul, the city was all but pulverized and destroyed. And innumerable numbers of people, both civilian and military, were killed in that campaign to break the Islamic State's back. And so in many cases, they go that route in order to discredit the people that are attacking them. And then at the same time, it drives up the cost of war for the person that's fighting, trying to levy the siege. And so again, we'll talk about Mosul here in a little bit. But The amount of costs that went into fighting that battle, especially because it was such a precision guided munitions heavy campaign fought on the U.S. like coalition side, that it all but like bankrupted the stocks of precision weapons that the U.S. had by the early summer of 2017. And there was still a couple months of hard fighting left. And so there's several reasons that you as a defender, you as a weaker actor would try and push into a city and cause a siege essentially to happen. And those, I think, are a couple of the big reasons. So take
2: us through an example of how a modern siege plays out. You've mentioned Mosul. Paint us a picture of how this battle transpired over, well, what was meant to be a matter of weeks, but went on for a matter of months.
3: So on the Battle of Mosul, for instance, so it started in October of 2016, I went through July of 2017. And depending on how you count the dates, it really went through early August. But officially, it ended in July. So it was nine months and four days long, right? And so it was only a few days shorter than the Battle of Verdun, which is pretty impressive. So a nine-month battle. So what had happened was, once ISIS had expanded and conquered vast amounts of territory there in northern and central Iraq, the Iraqi military, what we'll call the Iraqi Security Forces, the ISF, that's a common term used, They had sought help. You know, the government of Iraq had sought help. And so what essentially happened was Mosul, being the capital of the Islamic State's territory in Iraq, consolidated down into the city and essentially invested the city with 10,000 soldiers. All right. And so they put in defensive positions within the city. They built it up. They established all sorts of defensive belts within the city to protect themselves and to protect the territory that they held therein. And then uh, they went on the defensive and it was an active defense. They didn't just passively take what was being thrown at them. In many cases, uh, you can go back and look at footage that these Mad Max looking vehicles that they were using as vehicle borne IDs. You know, they had local drones purchased that they rigged up with grenades, essentially, that they would drop in on Iraqi and, and coalition forces. And so they fought a very active defense. And because they were fighting an active defense and they were trying to win, because that's what folks forget, too, they didn't go there to lose. In hindsight, we say, oh, yeah, they were going to lose. But we didn't know that. You know, it was a nine-month battle. A ragtag group of guys, if you remember, President Obama called them a JV team, fought a 72-nation coalition for nine months, destroying a city during that course of time. And so it wasn't ever given that it was gonna win. So essentially what they did though, is they fought this active defense over the course of the nine months. They started on the Eastern side of the city and that went from October to December. There was a siege within a siege essentially from October to December of 2016 in which the U.S. forces encircled that portion of the city, cleared that portion of the city. The U.S. and Iraqi security forces did that. And so the Iraqis did the preponderance of the fighting on the ground and the U.S. and coalition forces Provided the airborne intelligence and surveillance capabilities, both armed and unarmed, through drones primarily. And they assisted the Iraqis in clearing out the city, right? And so from October to December, they cleared the west side, but it was a porous siege at the time. There were in and out routes that the Islamic State was using. And this is one of the factors to remember, too. In a porous siege, like you saw in Sarajevo, when there's lines open into the city or wherever the siege is occurring, it makes the siege go on longer than it probably otherwise would because it's allowing the besieged force a lifeline that's keeping people, resources, food, things like that coming in and keeping them alive longer than they would if it was completely surrounded. So you have that encirclement going there through December, and then in January through July, the news closes quite a bit on the Islamic State, and they begin to uh, rapidly lose territory. The problem on the west side, though, is that it's more dense and more challenging to get in and clear out the people that the Islamic state has placed in all these buildings, right? And so in many cases, because it's more densely populated and it's more densely packed with houses and whatnot, the loss of life goes up as well as the damage to the city. And so as we push over, as the coalition pushes over to the western side of the city from January through July, the collateral damage skyrockets during that period of time. And so there's an even higher reliance on precision munitions, which in turn increases the cost for the U.S. and the coalition that's fighting there on that side of the city. And so all told by the end of the battle. So what you had was roughly 10,000. And again, this number is hard to pin down because the Islamic State didn't post their the roster, you know, prior to or after the battle, but roughly 10,000 Islamic State fighters in the city, the Iraqi security forces augmented with militia groups was able to muster a force of 108,000. So if you do the math there, that's a ratio of 10 to one. Right, so the Islamic State, 10 to 1, that doesn't even count the US-led coalition's participation, which tips the numbers to a greater degree. So in the course of that nine months with 10 to 1 force ratio, 44% of the city's 1.8 million inhabitants were displaced and living in camps outside the city. 70% of the city was reduced to rubble, which equated to roughly 10 million tons of debris and just destroyed city laying in the streets and a $2 billion reconstruction bill. And then the Iraqi security forces at the end of this nine-month period were all but destroyed. The 9th Iraqi Army Division, which is their only armored division, it's their only tank division, it started with 140 tanks, and by the end of it they had just over two dozen tanks left. And so those tanks were destroyed there in the battle for Mosul, also before Mosul, but primarily in Mosul. And then as Jack Watling at Rusi has reported, The CTS, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, which is essentially like their SF, Delta Force, Special Ops, they suffered 40% casualties and had 14 battalion commanders killed. And it's important to note, they don't have 14 battalions of CTS. And so you were just seeing this, this force getting chewed up continually as it was getting thrown into battle. And the other thing with the CTS was it was supposed to be an elite counterterrorism force, not a light infantry force. But due to the rigors of combat there in Mosul, the CTS had to get fed in as light infantry forces and employed in that way there in the battle. And so essentially by the end of the battle, the Iraqi army, the whole apparatus was broken. And then from the U S side, in terms of PGMs, there's some interesting data points. So from January to February, 2017 7,000 precision guided missiles were employed during that two month period, which is fairly significant. And then in March 500 to 600 a week. Precision guided munitions are being employed, and again, if you go back and look, it's fascinating. If you look at these numbers and these reports, and you can pull all this stuff from CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command's website, and you can just find it also just in like the LA Times or New York Times or whatever the report on the use of precision guided munitions. But by May, the United States is essentially out of precision guided munitions, and then reports indicated that they did that the U.S. would invest 20 billion dollars and the following budget to overcome that difference in that shortfall. And so that's Mosul in a nutshell, right? So 10,000 fighters were able to hold off, 108,000 soldier Iraqi army, augmented with all the things that the US-led coalition could bring to bear to help offset that. And so again, for some context, the Battle of Mosul, nine months, four days long, was equivalent duration to the Battle of Verdun from the First World War. It was four months longer than the siege of Stalingrad during World War II, and it was six months longer than the Vietnam War Siege of Hue. And so, again, these are sieges that we think about as being fairly significant right now. Leningrad's not as big as Stalingrad, certainly, but Leningrad was still a fairly significant battle and siege of the Second World War. And so it's just important to note that because the siege aspect of Mosul gets lost in the discussion of Mosul because in many cases, we want to talk about the drone aspect of Mosul or the precision strike capability that went into Mosul, or the security force assistance aspect of Mosul, and we tend to overlook the siege aspect of Mosul. Okay, Tristan, you got 50
2: seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries this seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world as far as we can tell anywhere in the world we've got the big names
4: it's one of these great things Pompeii. it's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction
2: we've got the big topics the man destroys seven legions in a day no one in history has done that subscribe to the ancients from history hit wherever you get your podcasts from Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: Are we being misled the way in which the West conducts warfare then? Because... The way in which you say you know, 70% destruction of the city of Mosul, I'm thinking more on the scale of something from the Second World War and strategic bombing of major cities. And then when you talk about precision, of course we heard a lot about precision strike, this idea that it is surgical warfare, pinpoint precise. It is cost-free, it is war on the cheap, it is remote control warfare. All of these buzzwords that we hear to describe the Western way of war in a detached manner the fact that it's little cost to our forces and it's a perfect precision it doesn't sound very perfect to me it sounds more like a slow burning bombardment from above of attrition just taking out building by building as isis move around freely within a geographical space that they control moving civilians probably in the line of target until you run out of precision missiles but you're also running out of targets to hit because each missile hits a different site and you've got a slow burn of the city being destroyed. Is this idea of our current precision wars a precision myth?
3: Yeah, so that's a great question, James. I think a lot of this gets dressed up under this idea that, like you said, precision strike capability is almost a panacea, a silver bullet in modern war, right? However, as Mosul attests, it's not. And so as I've done research and writing on Mosul specifically, but other cases, what you see in many cases is uh, this precision paradox that arises in these battles where the proposed efficiency and effectiveness of precision strike capability doesn't match reality, right? So it is accurate. It will hit the target that it's trying to hit. However, when it's servicing that target, when it's destroying that target, the effect is ineffective, right? And so... For instance, in a given made-up scenario, you have a house in Mosul, and the Iraqi army says, hey, there's four guys in that house that we need to take out. And so they dial up a strike, the strike comes in, whatever it is that delivers the strike, delivers the strike, the house is hit. However, when the house is hit, it doesn't kill everybody that's in the house. And then, you know, out of the four fighters in the house, two flee to another building, right? And so then in that building, they find out that there's like six people total once these other two people go in there. And so that building is struck, right? And then at the same time, there's a, another house across the street, and there's a sniper in that house. And that sniper is pinning down this whole column that's trying to move forward. And so they dial up a strike in that house, but they strike the other house at the same time. And then every time a house is hit, everybody that's not killed flees. Everybody that can flee flees, right? Right. And so what you have is a spidering effect of destruction that slowly creeps across the city as this precision strike capability is brought to bear and they try and surgically eliminate the enemy hiding out in these houses, right? And so instead of it being a clean and precise way of killing the bad guys as we move forward in time and space, it becomes a slow, destructive process that just slowly destroys the city as it chases the bad guys as the bad guys... Are chased around by the precision strike capability. And so that's why I I use the term, it's a precision paradox, right? So we have this myth built up around the efficacy of precision strike capability. But in many cases, that doesn't necessarily match the reality of how it's employed and the effect of it being employed on the battlefield.
2: So sieges sound like they're going to stick around, because if you can have 10,000 ISIS personnel holding off vast amounts, hundreds of thousands of troops for such a long period of time, then you're learning a lesson there. And you're learning that a siege is a thorn in the side of Western militaries. As the late great Colin Gray said, an enemy will always go against your perceived weakness. And it sounds very much like a siege is a perceived weakness of the West. So, What will future sieges look like, Amos?
3: I think it's also important to note on that aspect, too. Sieges offer a degree of cover for an actor that is trying to defeat or overcome an adversary as well. So if you look at what Russia's done in Ukraine, for instance, in many cases, the way that they've levied these sieges has been done so in such a way that it operates under the threshold of the attention of the international community, right? And so in many cases... In Ilyavysk, for instance, which was a smaller battle fought from July to August, early September of 2014. Ilovaisk is a city of about 16,000 people in Donetsk Oblast there in Ukraine. But it was fought from July to September. And the, the siege aspect of the battle was really from the 27th of August to the 29th of August. And so what had happened was the Ukrainians had tried to retake the city. They were successful in getting about six battalions into that city to take the city back from the Donetsk People's Army, the Russian proxies that had been holding the city since April of 2014. But as they did so, the Russians augmented the Donetsk People's Army with forces because, again, like the army in being was an important aspect for Russia through the proxy, right? And these proxies were getting rolled back at this time and losing a lot of territory in Ukraine. And so Russia would send its own forces forward to augment the proxies so that they could retain hold of what they had. Because again, if they didn't retain the territory that they had there in Ukraine, they were losing a lot of the reason for them being there anyway. And so what you have is they essentially encircle the Ukrainians there in the city, and there's a two day slow pounding of the Ukrainian forces there in the city. And between the 27th and the 29th, you've got about a two and a half, three day siege there. And as a result of that, there's a negotiated withdrawal where the Ukrainians say, okay, we're going to cede the city, we're going to depart the city, and they agreed to exit along two corridors out of the city. And then as they started the withdrawal, the withdrawal was supposed to occur on the 29th, 30th, the Russians and the Next People's Army, this coalition grouping here of forces, attacked the Ukrainians as they were withdrawing. And it turned into a rout, and Ukrainian soldiers were just... Scattering trying to get out of there alive, and so all unit integrity disappeared, and they're just trying to get out of there. And so, for that one at Ilovaisk, what you had was 366 Ukrainian soldiers were killed, 429 were wounded, 300 Ukrainian soldiers were captured, 36 civilians were killed, 600 of the 1,800 homes were destroyed, and 4,000 of the 16,000 people in the city fled. And then, also on top of that, you have basing, and this is something that gets overlooked today, too, when we talk about sieges. Basing is critical for a siege, and that's for the attacker, but also for the person that's in the siege, right? Especially if it's an open siege and they're trying to pump, you know, equipment, people, food, water, whatever the case may be, into the people that are besieged. And so at Ilovaisk, you had three cities that were destroyed because they were basing nodes for both the attacker and the defender in this. So three cities were also destroyed there at the siege of Ilovaisk. So anyway, you have the Ukrainians hit really hard there in the city. But the point of all that is to say that how many people know about the battle or the siege of Ilovaisk? you know, unless you've studied this war, nobody. And that's part of the brilliance of sieges in this capacity is if you fight it slow, you fight it small and you don't fight it jointly. Right. So we throw around the term joint, which is, you know, integrating all the services or more than one service. Right. If you look at how the Russians and the Donetsk People's Army fought at Ilovaisk, for example, there's no jointness to it at all. It's just the army fighting, primarily using rockets, you know, and artillery, but then also using their basic land forces or tanks or infantry to go in and combat those Ukrainian army units there on the ground. And so that's the point is that in many cases, the siege for the attacker can operate underneath the threshold of what draws attention to the international community, which in turn means they can do what they want. Right. And so. If you look at the Donbass campaign there in, in Ukraine, in many cases, like you can say, Russia got what it wanted out of that campaign. If you go back to July this past July, July of 2020, the Trilateral Cooperation Group all but said that the DPA and the LPA, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Armies and the Republics, the DPR and LPR, are the de facto parties in charge of that territory now, and the line of demarcation there, from where each group is separated that's the boundary. And so essentially, President Zelensky is all but ceded that territory, right? And so Russia's fought these slow sieges. Same thing too with the Battle of The Baltova was a significant siege on scale in terms of casualties and destruction with Ilovaisk. But if you ask most people, tell me about the Battle of Baltova, they have no idea what you're talking about. And so that's just an important aspect to remember as we talk about what is the future of sieges, It's not just this big, glorious thing. It's also something that can be done fairly low-key. But, I mean, again, the Battle of Vilevisk was the highest number of casualties for the Ukrainian forces in one battle, right? And very few people have heard about it.
2: So the sieges of the future are sieges that we'll likely hear nothing about. It's part of the problem here that we don't use the word siege When this is reported, I don't think I've heard a war reporter in a very long time talk about a siege in modern warfare. Instead, it's urban warfare, or they use the name of the city. Why don't we use this term siege anymore to describe this and show the severity and the destruction of these battles?
3: In many cases, I think it's uh, advancing our own narratives, right? And so in the West, we never want to say, because certain things have baggage, right? Sieges come with baggage. When you say the word siege, people have a mental model and they think of certain things, especially coming out of the siege of Sarajevo, the siege of Grozny, a lot of that baggage from those sieges carries forward with us. But we talk about those as sieges because it was somebody else doing all that bad stuff. Whereas when we talk about it from our own perspective, the Battle of Mosul is referred to as the Battle of Mosul, or the liberation of Mosul, as opposed to the Siege of Mosul, right? Because it's a narrative that we're trying to advance, and we want to make ourselves look like the good guys. And so in many cases... In the West, we don't use the word siege because we don't want, and this is just me speculating clearly, but we don't use the word siege. We speak through euphemism in many cases because we're trying to dress up what it is we're doing. It's the same thing with precision strike. I remember having a conversation once with a British officer and we were talking about the battle of Mosul, right? And I was talking through this idea of the precision paradox and this whole situation was very similar to spinal tap at the scene when the guitar player, I forget his name, is talking to Rob Reiner, the director, and they're talking about the amp. And he's like, this amp, it's louder, it goes up to 11. He's like, why don't you just make 10 louder? And he's like, but it goes up to 11. And so we were talking about precision strike in Mosul. And I kept saying, but does it matter because we still flatten the city? So does it matter that we flattened it precisely through precision strike at a high cost? Or what if we have been better? And, you know, it was more of a thought experiment because we were discussing the merits of what would have been better, doing this precision strike campaign or just lobbing artillery into the city or, you know, some sort of multiple launch rocket system and just trying to take care of the problem all at once. And so when we were going back and forth in this, he kept saying, but we use precision. And it felt very similar to that scene in Spinal Tap when Rob Reiner's like, why not make 10 louder? And the guitar player is like, but this goes up to 11. And so I think in many cases, we also believe... Westerners believe our own hype and our own narrative when it comes to precision strike. And we think just because we use precision, somehow it's better than not using precision, even though the effect may be the same, if not worse than it would have been had we used some other capability aside from precision.
2: I think there's a lot more to learn about the battle against ISIS, Operation Inherent Resolve and the battle for Mosul most specifically. For those of you listening at home, I was writing a piece recently where I was going through the historiography of the Battle of Mosul, one written by the US military, and uh, I sent it off to Amos, and I said, take a look at this, let me know if you think there's anything wrong, let me know if there's any inconsistencies, me confidently thinking that it was pretty spot on. I'd gone from the official sources. Turns out when you ask the people that have been there, there's uh, very different stories to tell, and Amos very kindly picked it apart for me. So I think there is so much more to learn. Amos, tell us, where can we read more about this?
3: So uh, I just had a recent paper come out through Rusi Journal entitled On Sieges. And it runs through a lot of what we talked about today. Uh, It explains the basic why people do sieges, why people don't do sieges, how sieges are conducted, the open and closed are permeable and porous sieges. And it highlights a couple of the modern sieges. Uh, In the paper, I talk about Ilovaisk, I talk about the Second Battle of Donetsk Airport. And I talk about the Battle of Mosul briefly. So that's a good starting spot, James. And then if you just, you have to dig around in a lot of places, you'll see sieges talked about indirectly through urban warfare. So if you look up a lot of urban warfare stuff today, you'll see sieges not mentioned, but discussed indirectly.
2: And where can people follow you on Twitter?
3: So you can follow me on Twitter at at AmosFox6. Great stuff. Well,
2: thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on the Warfare Podcast. You are always welcome, and we're going to get you back on to talk about different elements of that war against ISIS and the future of warfare. Thanks, Amos.
3: Thank you, James. I appreciate the time and appreciate the opportunity to come on here.